there's a community that like loves these movies and these stories and these characters. And so I think to be able to sit in a room with, you know, fellow community members um, is a big deal. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Joined here today by a stranger in these parts, editorial director of Box Office Pro, Daniel Luria, pinch hitting from his paternity leave. Daniel, have you been, aside from I assume, sleep deprived? I like the baseball reference to open up, considering that that's probably a dig that you kept on your back pocket after my Philadelphia Phillies were unceremoniously dumped. I won't right say it wasn't nice to see them lose at Show East. I was definitely right. watching I, that I one. thought, yes, I, I thought that would be the case. <laughs> see, I had a feeling that I'd be off of the podcast and this would come back to bite me. And it came back to bite me. But you know what, what the other thing I missed while I've been out? The Marvel Cinematic Universe imploded? What happened? I'm, I'm gone for like two months and there's no MCU. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Daniel, you can listen to last week's episode of the Box Office Podcast where we uh, went into the potential future of the MCU and whether the Marvels really did just go and tank the thing. But we have uh, really a lot to talk about this week. We've had a lot of news, something that we were talking about last week because we had some you know, schedule changes, the MCU schedule switching up, like moving a lot of its big tent poles from 2024 to 2025, begging the question, what the heck is going to kick off summer movie season in early May of next year? There was an open slot. There is no longer because Universal's The Fall Guy has moved from March of next year to May of next year. Daniel, that's the stunt guy movie that had the trailer and the presentation at CinemaCon that you missed. But it looks like a very you sort of thing. You mentioned that. You know, we all have that one CinemaCon presentation where we run to the bathroom and miss something important. This one was the one for me. And you mentioned this is a movie that's straight up your alley. Obviously, big vibes of movies like Atomic Blonde, like John Wick. But with a funnier, lighter touch. I mean, I think they're definitely, it's, you know, it stars Ryan Gosling, who's looking increasingly likely to get an Oscar nomination for playing a Ken doll. And so, no, you know, because of that, and uh, apparently, you know, I, I think Universal, it looks like they have a, a lot of trust in this film to have it open up the summer movie season. And taking Fall Guys' old spot, Dune Part 2 has moved. I want to give a second to let any listeners, like, get out there, oh my God, jitters, because it's not moving much. It is moving forward two weeks from March 15th to March 1st. And then additional news, 20th Century Studios has announced that an Omen prequel is coming out on April 5th. It has the Child of Satan in it, you know, obviously being a, a Satan film, or we can assume it's the Child of Satan. I don't know how far of a prequel it is. You know, is it the IVF treatment before you get to the Child of Satan? We're about to find out next year. So I'm looking forward to all those movies, the three of them look like movies that I'm going to be watching in theaters, Rebecca. And yeah, Daniel, before uh, we have a, a lot to discuss with regards to what's come out last weekend and a crowded Thanksgiving weekend. But first, I want to get really quickly to, I spoke earlier uh, last week with Ellis Jacobs, CEO of Cineplex, the number one distributor in Canada, 
Now, one of the main things that I discussed with Ellis during our call is, I guess you can maybe call it a secret sauce, a secret to Cineplexic success, though uh, that makes it, uh, there's not just one thing, there are a lot of things, namely diversification. It's something that has really helped Cineplex, you know, not have their eggs all in one basket to keep business kind of steady, even during slower times. Here is Ellis Jacobs speaking on that strategy of diversification at Cineplex. Yeah, most definitely. It's in in all Rebecca, it's a whole diversity diversification focus that really helps us because we have the location based entertainment business, which includes our rec rooms and palladiums. So that business is not reliant on Hollywood. It's more about our guests wanting to get entertained and coming uh, to the uh, location based uh, places. The other thing is on the international content. We use COVID and that time to get better access to our guests through our scene loyalty program. You know, nearly half the country is part of our loyalty program, and we've got close to 17 years of data. Mm-hmm. And that helps tremendously in being able to uh, have that individual relationship with our guests and bring them to the movies that we mm-hmm. want them to. And at the tail end of that quote there, another huge factor of, uh, of Cineplex's ongoing strategy, of their ongoing success, that loyalty program, that data that they get from customers. The loyalty program is not exclusive to Cineplex. It's tied in with a number of other different, like Scotiabank, and basically like if you go to a certain grocery store and buy points, you know, it all kind of goes together into the same bucket. So they have extensive data on moviegoers, on non-moviegoers, and it really allows them to be nimble in terms of programming, particularly international programming. Cineplex regularly over-indexes every other North American cinema chain when it comes to Bollywood titles. That was something that that Ellis really, really hammered home again not just with Bollywood titles, but the ability to see the changing demographics in certain areas, to sense where the interest lies in maybe some of these films outside of the traditional Hollywood releases, and to be able to program those to great success. That's uh, because of the loyalty program. We were able to do it quite quickly, mm-hmm. and it's worked really, really well for us. And what we do is, for example, if there's a big Bollywood movie, we use AI by looking at the local country and seeing what the social buzz is about that particular film. Mm-hmm. And then we can decide where to play it, what the language and what the screen time should be. Now, box office from this past weekend, Daniel, you've gotten out to those movies a few times since paternity, but not on often. Yeah. Not as often as I'd like. I did catch uh, Napoleon, which is coming out this weekend, this Thanksgiving weekend. There's a lot of Ridley Scott House of Gucci vibes in this one involving kinky sex and lamb chops separately, not at the same time. But yeah, no ridiculous accents, unfortunately, from House of Gucci. But yeah, it's one of those weird movies, cinematic spectacle, but also very much a Ridley Scott movie. And I think the people that know what I mean by that know what I mean by that. So that's a, these, Those are the magic words. But the weekend before Thanksgiving, i.e. this weekend that we are just coming out of, a little bit, uh, little bit slower, we had from Lionsgate, the Hunger Games prequel, 
The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which debuted domestically to 44 million. Uh, We had predicted just over 47 million. So it's kind of on par with expectations, if definitely uh, opening gross, it's far below any of the previous four Hunger Games films. That said, I've honestly been hearing good things. I think, you know, this having, not having a big star like Jennifer Lawrence, I mean, Lionsgate did not have Hunger Games size expectations for this. And, and I think to say it didn't meet the grosses of those first four films, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, the goalposts move, especially after this long, especially after the buzz around the book without the main star, Jennifer Lawrence, out. I think it's a, it's a different situation here. And it's a readjustment for Lionsgate, which is bouncing back from an off year in 2022 and 2021. A new franchise. We'll see how this holds in the coming weeks. Another title that came out last weekend was Trolls Band Together from Universal. That is the sequel to the film that almost killed theatrical exhibition back in 2020. This also performed along our expectations, Rebecca, a $30.6 million opening weekend it's a nice animated title going into the holiday frame which is going to have some competition from disney's wish we're going to go into that box office showdown shortly but not a terrible situation here from universal really performing along expectations and that leads us into a photo finish between third and fourth place last weekend rebecca eli roth's it used to be a joke trailer that turned into a movie thanksgiving and Disney's The Marvels on its sophomore frame. Wow, talk about a massive drop for an MCU title, probably losing out or maybe going neck and neck with a movie that started out as a gag over a decade ago. Yeah, this is uh, granted with the asterisk that we're recording this on Monday morning. So we are going off of estimated grosses that have both Thanksgiving from Sony TriStar and the MCU's Marvels coming in at 10.2 million over the weekend. We'll have to wait until those actuals come in later this afternoon to see what actually came out on top there. But it is the highest uh, sophomore drop by quite a bit for an MCU title. Of course, it was also by a fair amount, the lowest gross in the MCU's history opening weekend, a 67% drop internationally, which is better than domestic, but still not good. What, what caught my eye here was uh, on the Thanksgiving front, it has already come out in 11 markets, earning uh, 2.4 million internationally. Upcoming key markets, Belgium, France, Mexico, Netherlands, and Brazil. Is a movie about an American holiday going to translate? Or is it just like people are there for the gore? (laughs) Uh, People are there for the gore. Horror always translates, especially in Latin America. Mexico, a very loyal horror market. Listen, you could say the same thing about Halloween, right? It wasn't really a holiday outside of the United States until very recently. Now, it's a very different situation with Thanksgiving where absolutely nobody celebrates even the wonderful yeah, canadians like Canadian had their own. they've you got, got your a whole own. other yeah they've got the anti-pope thanksgiving it's wonderful they i don't know what they eat do they eat ham and like maple syrup who knows they've got their own thing going on yeah i think the holiday is going to be less of a draw but the horror is going to be the, i think the really the, the heartbeat of that film internationally talking about horror and this is a real question here is we see that 161.3 million dollar global growth from the marvels this thing called Five Night at Freddy's that went day and date from Universal is now up to 271 million worldwide. I'm not even sure, but there might be an off chance here looking at these drops from the Marvels where the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe title doesn't meet 
the global gross of a movie about animatronic rats that goes direct that went to streaming. Day and date on streaming. Yeah, it's, it is incredible. It's been an incredible. I mean, that is how bad Disney has been managing this MCU situation. I don't want to pile on more. I know you guys went all over this. And this is how good Five Nights at Freddy's is, has done. I mean, I think you look at it going day and date and you think, oh, it's going to kind of come and go. But it really tapped in to that Zoomer audience who have been fans of the franchise for years, who have really been been looking forward to it. Yeah, I know our predictions, you know, we were on the higher end of expectations, but no one expected really that 80 million opening weekend. And yeah, it's uh, on week four and still in the top five. Looking down at limited releases, we have The Holdovers, a holdover from Focus Universal, (laughs) which roughly doubled its screen count to around 1,500 screens, earning 2.7 million domestic. This looks like something that uh, Focus Universal is aiming kind of to do a a slow rollout to maybe get buzz going for awards season. Not likely to be a part of awards season in seventh place. Wide release, actually, from Searchlight Pictures. Next Goal wins a soccer slash football comedy from director Taika Waititi, opening to 2.5 million. We had 4.2 million as the expectation. This, yeah, this one just did not hit. It had Taika Waititi, who has a certain amount of name recognition now, and, and Michael Fassbender, but I don't know. Maybe this would have done better if it had come out a different time instead of when during this hugely competitive period. I, I'm not sure. It's a movie based on a documentary about a bad soccer team from American Samoa. I've seen the documentary. I saw it back at the Tribeca Film Festival. must have been, what, 2015, something like that. Charming documentary, but it's a niche subject. It was always going to be an uphill battle to find a wide-release audience for this movie. I would argue maybe it's a movie that doesn't need a wide audience. It feels kind of like uh, Sony's Dumb Money from earlier this year. Like it's a funny film and it's it, it seems like it's, you know, the classic underdog David and Goliath story, but just what the specific thing that the film was based on was just too niche and it threw people off from coming it in theaters. Hopefully we'll be seeing a lot of people in theaters coming up this weekend, the Thanksgiving weekend, and we have opening on the day before Thanksgiving, Wednesday the 22nd, from Amazon MGM, Saltburn, which is from director Amber Fennell, her follow-up to Promising Young Woman. It opened in seven theaters last week to a roughly 315K, Further uh, expansion to the holdovers, which is already on just Sky of 1500 screens. In terms of new releases, there are two main ones that we mentioned a little bit earlier in this episode. One from Apple being released by Sony domestically, Napoleon. We have that for the three-day range of 16 to 21 million. I imagine that this is going to do really well on PLF screens. It's definitely they're leaning into that visual element. And yeah, I mean, like you were saying, in terms of comps, Ridley Scott has two pretty solid comps that have both come out within this last two years. House of Gucci and The Last Duel, both kind of historically based. Both, I've been hearing Napoleon is like a lot funnier than you think it is and a lot more offbeat in tone. A little wackier than you expect it to be. There's a little bit of Kubrick and a lot of Ridley Scott in this, like late era Ridley Scott. I think 
coming into it, I think there was a lot of expectation that this might harken back to something like Gladiator, which is not at all the case for a movie like Napoleon. Well, he's he's working on Gladiator 2, so if you uh, regret that, that, you can go see Gladiator 2 whenever Ridley's done with it. <laughs> and those movies, I think, have an ambition to be more sword and sandal cinematic entertainment epics. This is a movie that is a little bit confused in its tone. It wants to be a little bit of a Wikipedia history entry, greatest hits of Napoleon's lifetime, some great battle sequences, magnificently directed, great performances, but the famous Ridley Scott's penchant for absurd dialogue and scenes that don't directly tell you something about characters, but sort of tell you something, a little bit of what's lurking beneath their motivations is there. If you find that interesting, uh, if you yes. don't mind inferring from characters away from dialogue that tells you everything you need to know, you might have a good time. But this is a movie, let's not get it wrong. It was it like in The Last Duel, how you could tell that Ben Affleck was kind of a little weird because he had like the frosted tips in medieval France, the bleach blonde. <laughs> There's a sense of humor to it. And that's not something I'd say about The Last Duel in general, but it sort of exists subversively in there. It has that weird subversive element from Ridley Scott, right? Where you always wonder, is he messing with me? Yeah, Probably I know, is. This is a dramatic Probably scene. Is. is he messing with me? So yeah, you have to go in knowing what it's going to be like. And of course, I think the expectations we have here around the $20 million range as a ceiling for opening weekend make sense for what it is. This is a movie, let's not get it wrong, that three years from now will live in the dad movie syndication cycle of being on basic cable every time you turn on the TV at 2 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon. I do want to ask you about this, Daniel, having seen the film. This is the second film that has come out this autumn that was uh, produced by, uh, by a streamer and is being released domestically by a traditional theatrical outfit. The other one was, of course, uh, Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which I finally got out to see before last weekend. That one, we said on a previous episode, it's sitting right now on 63.5 million domestic if you approach that from a perspective of this is a traditional theatrical release, that is concerningly low, but this is a prestige movie. Are you expecting something similar with Napoleon here? Like how much money does Apple really want slash expect slash need this to make in theaters? Because they're going to be counting on that downstream effect from streaming. Well, this isn't a bet on profitability. And if we don't have that expectation on anything that Netflix puts out, why would we have that expectation on things that Apple puts out? Apple is putting a theatrical release that did not have to be there because it's not in the streamer's direct interest line, but they did so anyway in a way that I think is going to benefit and somewhat offset the humongous costs of not only this movie, but Killers of the Flower Moon. These are the movies that used to be made by studios that haven't been made by studios in the last decade, maybe decade plus. So the fact that someone's out there and willing to pay for them that's just enough for me that there's movies for adults that actually have a production budget and that you can see in a movie theater. That's enough for me. I think everyone is on the same page here. Neither Killers of the Flower Moon or this movie had the sort of budget that anyone who was not Martin Scorsese or Ridley Scott would have gotten. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know what you're signing up for. This is going to be an expensive movie that will not make its money back 
in theatrical release. Will that make its money back in streaming? Oh, who knows? I don't know what metrics they use there. Assessing success of films like this one and Killers of the Flower Moon based on theatrical grosses alone is myopic and it's just misguided. wrong. We're, we're here to talk business. We're here to help exhibitors know what they can expect on opening weekend, on a holdover weekend. That's fine. But I'm not going to get into the trap here of saying this is a hit, this is a flop based on numbers. That's not what Apple is looking at. And that's not what these sort of movies look at to begin with. And speaking of uh, studios kind of uh, hearkening back to their past, bringing back maybe some things from the older school, out from Disney, we have Wish, an animated film that looks to draw very heavily on Disney's own legacy as a dream is, I'm not going to sing it, but a dream is a wish your heart makes, all that. We have it opening a three-day gross between 45 and 65 million, topping off at between 185 and 289. It's a little up in the air for me. I mean, it's not going to be getting a lot of premium screens because most of those are going to be going to Napoleon. I'm just not sure what the Disney strategy is here. I'm not sure how much interest there's going to be for a title like this. Disney has turned into a studio that for family films has really relied on word of mouth in subsequent weeks to really make it out alive with their movies. And they're leaning into that. They've been releasing like a song a week leading up to, so they're clearly like yeah. hoping for the earworm to catch on. Exactly. I think what I've learned really coming out of the pandemic is the family-focused Disney releases post-2020, you can't judge on opening weekend alone because we're all going to say they're a disappointment, right? I think that's it's wrong of us to have those expectations three weeks in. The success of Wish is going to come down on how it's performing by the time we get to Christmas. And in that regard, I don't see a head-to-head with Trolls as a concerning yeah, concerning factor. I really don't. But we'll see. I think Disney has shown that it can still release family films with legs and drive audiences based on word-of-mouth marketing alone. Now, I want to close this segment out and then let you get back to parenting by asking you kind of a a wider version of that question that you just discussed. Just as Disney can release animated films that hold very strong, it's something that we've said a lot on the podcast that that industry executives have said a lot, we should not be judging any film by how much it makes on opening weekend. That's a kind of an arbitrary thing to say that a movie's a flop or a success just based on three days. That said, I mean, we have a lot of films that are going to be in theaters this Thanksgiving weekend competing for your dollars, some of them new, some of them holdovers, one of them called the holdovers. Do you think anything on the slate here has holdover potential? But at the end of the day, Rebecca, you know this as well as every other exhibitor. It's not going to be enough for where we're at this year. This year is going to be a disappointment, period. The actor strike pushing movies like Craven the Hunter, pushing movies like Ghostbusters, pushing movies like Doom 2. Yes, we had Taylor Swift come in and save us for a weekend or two. We've had things like Sound of Freedom and Faith Base. There have been things that have come into the breach. That have helped. They've helped. But not to fill in that gap. Yeah, I, I think right now, a lot of us in this industry are just clenching our fists and trying to make it through the winter months. I hate to say it that way, but but it's the truth. We don't have a Spider-Man far from home. We have an Wonka. Avatar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, there's there's not that guaranteed hit. We've got Chalamet singing and dancing with Oompa Loompa Hugh Grant. I don't think that's going to bring in the people that the way the prior two years have brought in people with that Avatar sequel and that Spider-Man sequel. 
it's going to be a really rough end of the year. What I think a lot of us are looking at, yeah, really, really. And I think you see that reflected across the entire industry. I was not a showist, you were. This isn't something that we speak about very openly, but you're seeing a lot of layoffs in this business of people we know in companies that we're close to. A lot of people that we've known for many years are looking for work in this business right now. A lot of the trade shows that we've been to, there's been a nervous energy from what I've heard from folks coming back. I hate to say it, but there's this nervous anxiety, this flop sweat for the holiday season this year that I'm more concerned about. So yes, we can pick out little inflection points, you know, something holds well. I mean, we've had we've had successes this year with like Super Mario or, or Spider-Man Spider-Verse. Yeah, absolutely. No, Barbie, there's a lot of good things. But when holiday season doesn't hit, that's a big deal. It is, it is. And I think it's going to be a long wait until March. And thank God that Dune was moved up to March 1st, where I think once we get to March 1st of next year, and Dune 2 opens in theaters. Again, it's not going to be a $500 million domestic movie, but it's going to make a good amount of money and it's going to get people excited. That's when we can start breathing easy and start saying, all right, now, now we can get the machine started. No strike. Can we though, when there's one Marvel movie and one DC movie coming out next year? I don't know. That is another conversation that we had last week and that will continue evolving. I know, I know. But the way those DC movies and those Marvel movies performed, they're not the guarantees they were five years ago. We haven't talked about Aquaman this holiday season. I'm seeing the trailer on the big screen for the first time. Like I'm kind of pumped a little bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I think that's good. I think that's good. Hopefully for the industry, other people are. But I think it's telling that there's a big DC cinematic universe movie coming out in the holiday season. It's not, it's barely relevant for us to talk about until last two minutes of our, of, of this segment in the podcast. That's an issue. I don't mean to be negative coming back in, but I do think we need to provide that context. It's going to be a rough holiday season. It's not going to be the year we wanted it to be. We're hoping next year is going to be an improvement. You're right in saying there's warning signs already, but we do have to come into a realization that this year did not turn into what we wanted it to at the start. And that's okay. That's fine. I mean, I think we can put a lot of that on the strike. I think Exhibition worked on a lot of solutions like the Taylor Swift movie, like this Beyonce movie. I have a lot of hope going into 2024, but I do have to say I have that trepidation and I'm not alone going into this last quarter of 23 at the box office. Well, Daniel, thank you for uh, stepping back into the recording booth here to drop us a little nugget of positivity and optimism. No, I, I kid. It is, you know, we we love this industry and we're cheerleaders of it, but we don't want it to be a, a rose-colored glasses situation, certainly. And I, and I think you make a lot of good points there. But uh, yeah, Daniel, thanks again for stepping in. In just a, a few seconds here, we will be hearing from Chad Kennert, who spoke with Francis Lawrence for our feature segment, the director of the Hunger Games Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Be right back. Joining this podcast episode, Chad Kennerk, box office pro analyst. Chad, I know you went to see the Hunger Games prequel over the weekend. I almost saw it. I saw the 7 o'clock, uh, 7 p.m. showing time that looked really great for where I was and for the logistics. And then I saw that two hour and 45 minute runtime. And I was like, mm, I don't know. But I mean, after talking with you about it earlier, it, it sounds like a good film. Yeah, it's a good watch. And it's been eight years since we've had a Hunger Games film. And this really faithfully brings to life the prequel book that Suzanne Collins 
wrote in 2020. And it, the movie sends audiences back into the arena and the world of Pan Am. So I didn't even, I mean, I'd read the original books and watched the original movies. I think I'd heard at some point that there was a prequel book, but I it didn't. By that time, I was, you know, kind of moved on to other things. For those who have not read the prequel book or not familiar with the prequel material, maybe not even familiar with the original Hunger Games, does it still work as kind of a teen post-apocalyptic commentary thing? Yeah, and I don't think you necessarily have to go into it having watched the other films, having read any of the books, because it is set 64 years before... Katniss Everdeen volunteered as tribute, you can really jump in and take this as a fresh experience. And I do think when I talk to Francis Lawrence, the director, he's right in that it's not really a rehash, but it has enough elements within it to give you that Hunger Games movie feel. And it's an origin story. It delves into the origin of songs and symbols, characters, and how the games themselves became so popular. Thank you, Chad. Let's go right ahead to your interview with Francis Lawrence, who directed the second, third, and fourth films in the original Hunger Games films franchise and returned to that world for Lionsgate's prequel, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Francis, thank you so much for joining us today on the Box Office Podcast. I want to start by talking about the Hunger Games exhibition in 2015. You talked at that time about that being a very surreal experience, seeing several years of your life come together in an exhibit. What has the return to this universe been like for you? It's been really exciting. I mean, I, I will say, so 2015, you know, we thought it was like really the end. And part of the end was seeing that exhibition in the museum and it being sort of, it was very moving because you you start to realize like how important these movies and stories are to people's lives and all of that. But it felt like it was a chapter that was kind of over and that I was very proud of. So when Suzanne surprised us with the fact that she was almost done with another book in 2019, it was really exciting to think like, hey, we can uh, jump back in. We can expand the world. We can work to get, all work together again. It would be really fun. Has adapting beloved material been happenstance or by design for you in your career? I mean, kind of happenstance. I mean, there's definitely like things like I work on a fair amount of adaptations. I mean, geez, pretty much everything I've done is an adaptation actually from a book. But, you know, I, I definitely read, you know, spec scripts too. So I think it's just like happens to to be like what I've ended up working on. Yeah. Music plays such a vital role in this story. How has your career and your background in music videos played into your films. Do you think musically as a director? I do think musically as a director, I think music becomes a big reference point for me. Usually very early on in the process, I'll start thinking, making playlists and thinking about music. I'll listen to music on set sometimes, like while sometimes like in one ear, I'll have music playing and I'll have, you know, the scene and dialogue in another ear. Sometimes I'll play music for the actors. Obviously like music plays a big part in the sort of the cutting process early on before, you know, the the composer gets involved and so yeah it's a, it's a huge part and I, I definitely think musically and I think music has a huge sort of influence on you know obviously emotion and sort of impact and tone which I think is really key so yeah it's, it's a huge huge factor for me. What was your shoot like are there other stories from the production that we haven't heard yet? 
it was a pretty good shoot. You know, I mean, the good thing about like these movies in general, the original ones and this one too, they tend to be very bonding experiences. You know, people mm. have the team spirit, they fall in love with the stories. There's a lot of people that are of very similar ages in these movies. So there's like some, like a lot of bonding there, but you know, our key cast really bonded and you know, all the like mentors and tributes, they all kind of bond. And so it's usually a pretty pleasant experience, I have to say. For fans of the franchise already, how does this film stay true to the world that they know, but also deliver a really fresh experience? Well, I think, you know, part of what I loved about reading it the first time was that, you know, A, it very much felt like a Hunger Games story, which was great, but it felt fresh and it felt unique. It didn't feel like a rehash, right? We're doing a very different kind of story. Instead of a, you know, a young woman's survival story, we're telling this sort of a young man's descent into darkness. Mm -hmm. which was fascinating. But I will think the other thing that's really satisfying for original fans of the movies and books is, you know, it's an origin story of the whole series in a, in a way, because we're going so far back to the beginning and we're getting the origins of songs, the origins of behavior, the origins of characters, the origins of the games, the origins wow. of, you know, symbols and names. And, you know, it's so I, I just think that's going to be really satisfying. And some of it is also sort of, upends a little bit and recontextualizes like some of the mythology that I think people are used to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to going back now and watching the original four and seeing how that shifts my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And those previous entries in the franchise were such a cultural moment. They were midnight screenings. I remember Catching Fire in particular, there was such an anticipation for that story. We've seen that this summer with Barbie and Oppenheimer and Taylor Swift. So those cultural moments can still happen. Curious your thoughts of where we are in exhibition and why seeing this origin story together in a theater with previous generations of fans and new generations of fans coming together is important. You know, I mean, look, I'm a big fan of the theatrical experience, right? And so I think everybody talks about immersion and the size of the screen and the sound quality and all of that, right? Which is one huge thing. And like, I honestly, I like nothing more than this movie in IMAX. You know, it's like great sound. You see it huge. It's great. We have a bunch of the full aspect ratio. Yeah. But what I will say too, is that when you have a series like this, part of what I think is really great is that, you know, there's a community that like loves these movies and these stories and these characters. And so I think to be able to sit in a room with fellow community members is a big deal. It's not just being around other people and it just being a social sort of experience. But I think that like when you're all sort of embracing this kind of fandom and this community, I think it could be a great thing. And especially when you get into the sort of the origins, like I'm talking about with the story and you know, any nostalgia that might sort of like percolate, you know, for people who loved the original, the original movies, and even for new people coming in, for new people to come in and feel the energy of fans getting to sort of see and learn about these characters in new ways, I think could also be really exciting. Yeah. Speaking of IMAX and, and also Catching Fire, that change in aspect ratio was like Dorothy stepping into Technicolor for me. <laughs> yeah. um, what was your experience like working with IMAX this time around? This time around, I mean, look, it's great. So I, again, like I said, I'm a fan of the theatrical experience. I also love the large format experience. My cinematographer and I have honestly started, even with like a TV show we did, we started using large format, you know, digital cameras. So we're shooting with the large format sensors anyway, and those lenses. 
So as soon as we were going to get into this, it was like, yeah, let's do, let's do an IMAX version and let's like, let's pick the spots where we kind of open up and, you know, go giant with it. And it was great. And, you know, it was just, there was a moment, I think because of Dune, where it felt like we weren't going to actually get any IMAX screens, which is a bummer, but I'm glad we held and finished our IMAX version because we got the IMAX screens and super excited about it. Yeah. The novel in particular includes a lot of world building. What were those conversations like with your collaborators in creating this universe again, but many years earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that the period aspect of this is kind of gave us a bunch of freedom. And that was really, really fun. So Uli Hanisch, who's the production designer, who I love, he's Berlin-based, and I love a bunch of his work. But he and I got on the phone, we started talking about the movie and the story, and and we sort of landed on reconstruction era Berlin, right? Because we're mm-hmm. like in a world that's not long after war. So like, let's look at Berlin, you know, after World War II, you know, in the late 40s, early 50s, when they're like cleaning the rubble out of the streets, rebuilding the buildings that are there, putting up new buildings, and like, what does that look like and feel like? And once we had that, that informed a lot in terms of sort of architecture and the layout of the capital, but also it started to inform auto design, hair, makeup, wardrobe. We we needed technology to be much more rudimentary in this movie. And so we started to look at that era for the technology as well. So it became that sort of, that time became our kind of guiding light visually. Yeah. And speaking of technology, it's changed so rapidly since the original films has technology, did it create new opportunities or even new challenges on this film? You know, I mean, I think, look, but of most of the movies that I've done, I will say that this was not the most challenging visual effects movie that I've done. There are certain sequences that are tough. The bombing sequence is a tough one. The snake, the big snake sequence in the arena is a tough one. There's a lot of animation going on there. Yeah. Not easy by any means, but in terms of just like the grand scheme of things, it was not the most challenging. But technology definitely helps in certain ways. You know, like 10 years ago, doing a scene where you've got, you know, a young woman who's like getting covered completely in snakes would have been a much tougher thing, you know, when you have to like basically replace her body digitally, replace the dress digitally, put the digital snakes on, have it interact with a, you know, a lace dress and you know, there's complicated moments in there that I think people are just more well-equipped to tackle now. And what was that experience like coming back with so many of your frequent collaborators? I mean, that's always great. I think that, you know, the truth for me is that, you know, over the years, starting even with music videos, you start to build kind of a group of people that, A, you really respect and you really trust their taste and admire their taste and like them as people because, you know, we go and we make these movies and we move away from our families and we're, you know, living together in foreign countries for a year at a time. And so it's always great to go back with this group of people and and care about something and make something together. Given our exhibition focus here at Box Office, I always like to ask, do you have a favorite movie going memory or experience? I mean, I have many. I think my favorite theatrical experience I ever had was when I went and saw Apocalypse Now and it was a 70 millimeter remaster at the Cinerama Dome and it was the original cut it was not one of the newer cuts it was the original cut but it was a 70 millimeter remaster at the Cinerama Dome that was like that was my best movie going experience I think I've ever had 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thank you as well to director Francis Lawrence, box office analyst Chad Kennerk, and box office editorial director Daniel Loria, who will be back with the podcast, back from paternity leave sometime in mid-December. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by the Box Office Company, Box Office Pro, and Record Edit Podcast. Tune back in next Thursday for a breakdown of how the Thanksgiving weekend went at the box office. Thank you and goodbye.